Good evening, and welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in chapter 7, starting with verse 17 tonight. I just want to acknowledge a couple of things before we get into the Word. Uh, first of all, I'm recording this Tuesday at noon, around noon. So by the time you're watching this, of course, you'll know a lot more than I do about uh, Tropical Storm Laura, which is probably going to be a hurricane by the time you watch this. Uh, so just know that I'm I'm praying for all of us. Uh, I think we're going to be fine, but uh, we have closed the offices for tomorrow, Thursday, um, and we'll just monitor things as they go. Uh, secondly, we are in a, a season of focused prayer right now as a church. So let me remind you, if you don't already subscribe to my daily prayer email, I hope you will do so soon. Uh, today, in fact, go on the uh, webpage of firstbaptistconroe.org and click on growing and then click on first moments devotionals and subscribe and we're praying for four things together as a church uh, during this season to reorient our thoughts to get ourselves of one mind as we move forward in transforming this community through the power of God working alongside him to bring peace to the chaos in our community this is, these are exciting days. I don't care what you say about COVID, about hurricanes, about anything else happening. Uh, it is great to be serving God right now, and I'm glad to be serving God alongside you. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, again, starting with verse 17. If you have a Bible, uh, get it out and work and read alongside me as we're going to be going through this verse by verse. So let me start with this. People often think of Christianity as a list of doctrines to believe in, a list of rules to follow, and a list of rituals to observe. And that's basically religion you're describing. That's, that's religion in a nutshell. It's doctrines, it's rules, it's rituals. And those are all part of Christianity, there's no doubt. There are, there are doctrines in the scriptures that are non-negotiable, that if you don't believe those, you're not really worshiping the God of the scriptures. You're not really worshiping the God of Jesus Christ. There are rules to follow that are written for our good. God didn't write them to make life difficult for us or to separate the good people from the bad people because the Bible says we're all inherently sinful. He wrote them so that we could experience life and life more abundant. And there are rituals to follow. These are rituals that Christ set up so we could know him better, so we could grow as a body of believers. But let me just say this. If all you have as a Christian are doctrines, rules, and rituals, then what you have is not all that different from any other religion. Even if you're believing the right doctrines and you're following the right rules and you're, you're observing the right rituals, you're still not experiencing the Christian life in its fullness because, honestly, there's not a huge difference. There's not a huge gap between the doctrines, rules, and rituals of Christianity and some other world religions, what separates Christianity is the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. Jesus said that you must be born again. That's what he told Nicodemus. Nicodemus was already, in John chapter 3, he's already a man who followed the rules better than most of us. He believed the right doctrines. He followed the rituals as was he was given. Jesus said, no, you've got to become a new person. So I, I say all that to say this. Continue to study the Word of God. Continue to follow the commands. Believe in what the Word says. Continue to go to church and do all the things that we're supposed to do in order to get closer to God and grow as a church. But you have to change the way you think. You have to become a new person. Christianity is really about seeing the world in a new way. 
and learning to live a, a totally radically different way, not just outwardly, but inwardly. Let me just give you some examples real quickly. Christianity changes the way we look at other people. In the ancient world and in, in basically the world today, the world is divided into people who agree with me, people who affirm me, and people who don't. So people who don't share my beliefs and my values, they're my enemies. That's the natural way of looking at things. I mean, we see this in an election year, right? Anybody who doesn't vote the way I do is an enemy to be destroyed. Anybody who is of a different race than me in this racially divided time, well, they're an enemy to be overcome. But in the Christian realm, when God changes the way you think, suddenly these people aren't enemies to be destroyed. They're potential brothers and sisters who just haven't come home to the family yet. And so instead of trying to overcome these people, instead of trying to put them in their place, you start to pray for them. You start to treat them with kindness, even if they're not kind to you. I'll give you another example. Uh, in Christianity, it changes the way you look at your circumstances. See, as a, natural, as a natural person, things that make me happy are good. Things that make me sad are not. Things that fulfill my appetites are good. Things that deprive me of, the, of my appetites are bad. But when Christianity comes in, when, when the Holy Spirit changes my thought pattern, I start to look at things completely different. I still give thanks for the good things. I still enjoy the good things. But suddenly, circumstances go bad, and instead of saying, oh no, my life is ruined, I say, oh, well, this is an opportunity for me to grow. This is an opportunity for me to know God better. This is a testing time where I can really become who God wants me to be. I'll give you one other example. Apart from Christ, no matter what my religion, death is a bad thing. But in Christ, death is promotion. In Christ, death is something that by his power, by the power of the resurrection, I've overcome. So hopefully people are going to be sad when I die, but not too sad. And I won't be sad at all because I'm going to be getting what I've always wanted. It changes the way I look at the world in so many ways. And those are just three examples. So with that as, a, as, a, as an introduction, I, we, we pick up with verse 17. Paul, remember, just as a reminder, at the start of chapter 7, Paul has begun confronting some of the specific questions the Corinthians sent to him in a letter that we don't possess. So don't look for rules here. Look for a new way to see the world. All right? So verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So verse 17 gives us the principle for the rest of the chapter, which is don't seek to change your status. Don't seek to change your place in life. Uh, the principle is don't worry about where you are. See, as, as a bit of background, the Roman world had a very uh, stratified class structure. Uh, it was, there was something that was called in Latin the cursus honorum, which meant the race for honors. And your goal was to move up in class. If you were a slave, then you were at the bottom of the heap and you should try your best to become a freedman. 
That's somebody who has become free from slavery. If you were a freedman, then your goal was to become a citizen of the empire. Being a citizen carried with it certain perks, certain uh, privileges. You could wear the toga. You could, you could vote. You could have certain status. If you were a citizen, then you should try to become an equestrian, someone who uh, had uh, the status of nobility. I, I think it's interesting that the, the high-class people were called equestrians, which means those who rode horses. Uh, just like today, your mode of transportation was a way of showing people your class in the world. Just like today, driving a, a late-model El Camino with a different colored door and hood than the rest of the car indicates you're in one class, whereas driving a, a brand-new Ferrari or uh, you know souped-up pickup indicates you're in a much higher class. So uh, life hasn't changed all that much. If you were in the equestrian class, well, then you could hope to become a senator. You gain the favor of, of the people and, and you get to that class where you get to rule. And ultimately, the highest class of all was to become Caesar himself. So in the Roman world, the idea was you need to move up. Because if you're a, a slave, obviously your choices are limited. If you're a freedman, no citizen is going to marry his son to your daughter or his daughter to your son. If you're a citizen, you can't break into that that ultimate class of equestrians unless and enjoy their privileges unless you make that jump. Paul is saying that's not the point of life. That is not why we're here. Now let me make something clear, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but this is different from Hinduism. Hinduism teaches that there are certain castes. You can be untouchable, you can be poor, you can be, and so forth, all the way up to Rama, uh, Brahmins. And Hinduism teaches that it is a sin to cross your caste. In other words, it's a sin for someone from a higher class to marry someone of a lower class, or even to try to rise in caste. Uh, that's not what Paul said. He's saying it's not wrong, as we'll see later. He's not saying it's wrong to move up in the world. In fact, if you do, good for you. He's saying don't make that your goal. That's not the point of life. Okay, so that's the principle here. And he's going to give certain specific examples of how to be content or, or in what way we should be content in the class we're in. And he starts with circumcision. And this sounds really weird to us. First of all, we don't even know who's circumcised or uncircumcised in today's world. Aren't you glad? Um, but in the Roman world, they did, because in the gymnasium, you exercised without clothes on. Again, aren't you glad certain things have changed? And Jewish men in Roman cities, in, in Gentile cities, when they would go to exercise, they would, they would be ostracized because their Gentile neighbors could look at them and say, oh, you're a Jew. And this was during a time of, of deep anti-Semitism. Claudius had, had banished all Jews from the city of Rome. And so there were Jewish men who literally would go and have a surgery that existed in that time that would remove the marks of uncircumcision. And listen, that is literally all I know about this. I don't know any details and I don't want to know. But just to say that Jewish men were so concerned about their status in Roman society, they would have a surgery to ensure that they weren't mistreated. Again, life hasn't changed all that much, has it? People today still have certain surgeries so that they'll be seen differently in our world. So he's saying, don't worry about that. On the other hand, if you're not circumcised, let's say you're a Gentile, 
and you want to get in good with your Jewish neighbors. Don't worry about that stuff, Paul says. That's not important. Think about what a change this is for Paul. I mean, a few decades before, before he came to Jesus, he would have said, well, if you're a Gentile, you better believe in my God and you better be circumcised or else you're no friend of mine. And now Paul says circumcision is nothing. It doesn't matter anymore. What matters is how you stand in the presence of God. So verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Again, repeating that same principle. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when, is call, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let there, remain, there let him remain with God. So Paul's next example is your status as a slave or a freedman. Paul says, don't worry about that. If you're a slave and you have the opportunity to buy your freedom, do it. That's great. If you have the opportunity to become free, that's going to increase your opportunities in the world, and it's, it's, it's blessing for you, so avail yourself of it. So again, he's not saying that earthly success is a bad thing. Don't take this to mean that if, you're, if the company you're in uh, gives you an opportunity for a promotion, that it's wrong for you to, to shoot for that. No, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that's not the goal. Whether you're a slave or free, ultimately doesn't matter. It matters in a temporary sense. It brings temporary blessings if you can move up in status. But that's not the important part. Because even if you are free, you're ultimately a slave to Christ. In God, we're all the same. So he then moves on. Verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So there's a couple of things going on here that are really confusing to us, uh, especially if all you have in front of you is your English translation of the Bible and you're not able to avail yourself of some commentaries or something that tells you about life in biblical times. So when he talks about con concerning the betrothed, uh, what is he talking about? Some Bibles say concerning virgins. That makes it even more confusing, but that's literally what Paul says. He's talking about the practice of engagement in the ancient world. Now, in our world today, engagement is, uh, is exciting. If you get engaged, you know, hopefully you're, uh, the, the man gets down on his knee in front of his uh, intended and, and does it right. And it's a real romantic moment. And these days, they even have engagement parties. That's something they didn't have when I got engaged. But we make a big deal out of it. But let's say that those two, that, that couple decides somewhere down the road, you know, I don't think this is right. We're not going to get married. It's a big deal, but not legally binding. So if an engaged couple today breaks off the engagement, she gives him the ring back, they send out a card to everybody they've invited the wedding saying, well, it's, it's been canceled, and there's grief, there's embarrassment, yes, uh, but I, I tell you, that's better than getting married to someone you shouldn't marry. In the ancient world, it was different. L uh, engagement or betrothal was a legally binding status. So, for instance, look at Joseph and Mary in the Gospels. When Joseph believed that Mary had gotten pregnant because she had had sex with another man, what, is the, what does the Gospel tell us? It says, he was going to put her off quietly. What does that mean? 
It means that Joseph, in order to break off the engagement, he couldn't just say to Mary, okay, we're done. Give me back my ring. He had to actually go to a court. He had to actually do a legal process similar to divorce in which uh, his engagement was legally broken by a higher authority. Joseph, because he was a righteous man, wanted to do this quietly. He didn't want to publicize it all over Nazareth. Uh, I'm breaking off my engagement because my wife is an unrighteous woman. He was going to do it quietly to spare her dignity, which just shows us something of the character of the man that would raise Jesus from his childhood. But that shows us how binding betrothal was. So what's the issue here? There were men in the Corinthian church, men and women who were engaged to be married. And they were asking Paul, should we go forth with these engagements? As we're going to see, as we saw last week, and as we're going to see in the next verse, there was something going on in Corinthian society that made the circumstances different. Something had changed in the outward world that made them think, is it still a good idea to get married these days, or should we put this off until things settle down a little? And so here's Paul's advice. First of all, he says, I have no command from the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying, this is not something that Jesus addressed directly when he was here in this world. But the Holy Spirit is guiding me in what I'm about to say to you. So what I'm about to say to you is equally as binding as if the Lord himself had spoken. So what does Paul say about engagement? He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So first of all, we talked about this last week, but you may not have listened or you, you've slept since then. So let's remind you, when he says, in view of the present distress, we don't know exactly what he's talking about there. Something was going on in the, Corinthian, in the area around Corinth that made the Corinthian Christians think, things have changed around here. Do we need to act differently? For instance, do we need to break off our engagements or postpone our wedding plans until things calm down? We don't know what the present distress was. As I said last week, some people take it to mean there was some persecution of Christians, although we have no uh, biblical or external evidence to believe that was happening. Or some people refer to uh, there's some evidence that there were some natural disasters, famines, earthquakes, etc., that made people think life has gotten different here. Here in 2020, we can sort of understand that, can't we? Uh, a couple, a married, an engaged couple might right now say, let's wait until 2021 to go forth with our wedding, for instance. So what is Paul's advice? Paul's advice can be summed up in these words. Whatever you want to do, whatever you think is best, it's not really that important. The important thing is that whatever you do, you do it to the Lord's glory. He's going to get more specific in just a moment. But let me just say, Paul doesn't give a specific uh, order here except to say, do whatever leads you closer to God. So let me address one more thing before I get into his, his reasoning behind this unusual teaching. 
So some people look at what Paul says here and they'll say, hey, look, Paul thought the second coming was about to happen because he said the time is growing short and the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul thought that the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime and therefore Paul was wrong and therefore we don't have to listen to Paul. You will actually read this argument in some uh, blogs, in some even commentaries written by people who are a little more theologically liberal. Let me say two things. Number one, I don't believe Paul was saying the second coming is going to happen in their lifetime. I don't think that's what he's saying at all, and I'll tell you why in a second. Number two, even if he was, even if I'm wrong, and Paul did literally think the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime, that doesn't change the, the, uh, the verity, the truthfulness, the inerrancy of Paul's teaching. Because he doesn't actually come out and say that Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. And because literally no one knows. Even Paul didn't know when Jesus would return. Even Jesus, when he was here in the flesh, said, the son does not know. That's, that's a whole different subject, how Jesus as God in human flesh couldn't know the future that perfectly. I believe it's because he chose to empty himself of some of his divine knowledge. But that's another subject. My point is, even if Paul is literally saying, hey, it sure seems like Jesus is coming back in our lifetime, so we need to change the way we act, that doesn't change the, the truthfulness of the Word of God. That just means we should all live as though Jesus is coming back now in our lifetimes. But I don't think that's what Paul said. And let me show you why. When he says... When he says the present form of this world is passing away, he's absolutely right. He's not saying it's going to pass away in the next few years. He's not saying it's going to pass away in our lifetimes. He's saying it's not going to last forever. What Paul says in verse 31 is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Earthly institutions like business success, like social status, and yes, even like marriage, none of those were meant to last an eternity. So that's not the point of life. And that's all Paul is saying. Don't base your life on these things. Don't base your happiness on these things. Don't base your hopes on these things. So now here's why. Verse 22, or 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Is there a lot of anxiety in our world today? This is really pertinent. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided attention to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. What he's saying there is, as we said earlier, 
if you do get married, whether you're a widow or a bachelor or a bachelorette, marry someone who knows Christ. Don't be unequally yoked, okay? I love this last verse, verse 40. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Here's Paul with the ultimate understatement. I think I got the Holy Spirit too. You can listen to me even though Jesus didn't directly speak on these things, and he is right. So I just read a long section. I'm not going to cover everything that was in it, but just to say this shows why single life even a lifelong celibate life can be just as fulfilling as marriage and children and family life that we all revere and long for so much. And that's a very revolutionary teaching. But think about it. Jesus was single his entire life. Paul, as far as we know, was single his entire life. Probably number one and number two in terms of importance, in terms of influence on our world from a Christian standpoint and they didn't have wives, they didn't have children. So this was a revolutionary idea. In the ancient world, the Jews, for instance, believed that family was everything. You didn't pursue individual greatness as a Jew. You pursued greatness on behalf of your family. How did you make your family great? Two things, by following the commands of God and by bearing lots of children. That's it. And in the Roman society, although they didn't pursue righteousness like the Jews did. They esteemed marriage. They esteemed family life uh, to a similar extent. Uh, for instance, widows who didn't get remarried soon enough were fined by the government. Can you imagine that? You talk about uh, government overreach today. Can you imagine your, your spouse dies and a year and a half later you get a message from the government that says, hey, you have to pay this fine because you should have been remarried by now. And so Christianity is the first philosophy or religion that comes along and says, you can be unmarried your entire life and live just as full, just as joyful, just as meaningful and fulfilling a life as the person who gets married and has a house full of kids. Now, why is that true? That's true because marriage is not ultimately the point. Is this saying there's something wrong with marriage? No. All Paul's saying is the reason you can have such a fulfilling life is because if you're single, you don't have to try to please your husband. You don't have to try to please your wife. You don't have to worry about your kids. For a very specific example, in the ancient world, there was the possibility every day that you could lose your job because you were a Christian. If that happened, if you had a family, you would worry immediately about feeding your children, about taking care of your spouse. But if you were single, you could say, I'm only risking my own life, my own food, my own home. I can be bold for the Lord. Heck, if they tie me to a stake and burn me, that's okay. I go to heaven in that case. I don't have to worry that I'm leaving an earthly family here with nothing to provide for them. And so I can serve God wholeheartedly. Again, we've already seen last week Paul says that marriage is an amazing thing and it's something to be esteemed, something to be entered into somberly and soberly and rejoiced in. So he's not denigrating marriage in any way. He's simply saying it's not the ultimate thing. So obviously, let's just wrap things up. Obviously, Paul is writing to people who lived in a very different time from ours, people who were experiencing very different circumstances than ours. 
So again, this is not about setting new rules for life. This is about helping us see the world differently. So two ways I think this tells us to see the world differently. Number one, God is not working toward the same goals that most of us are. This is where disappointment in life comes in because most of us are seeking the earthly version of success. And let's be honest, the life that is promised to you by a lot of TV preachers, a lot of very popular ministries today, goes right along with the world's version of success. Follow God, be faithful to God, and you'll have your best life now, and you'll have earthly success, and you'll have earthly prosperity. Does that happen sometimes? Absolutely. Does it happen all the time? Not even close. Not even close. Some of the most faithful people in Christian history, including in Scripture, have experienced the opposite of earthly success. That's not the point. If God blesses you with a happy and fulfilling marriage, rejoice in it. If God blesses you with career success, if God blesses you with status in this world, then see it as an opportunity to glorify him in a spectacular way, but that's not necessary for living a fulfilling life. If you expect that God's gonna give those things to you, either you're gonna be disappointed because he doesn't give them to you, or you're gonna be disappointed because he does give them to you and you think that's what's gonna give you happiness, and it won't. But if your happiness is in God, if your joy and your foundation is in him, then you're guaranteed to live a fulfilling and joyful life regardless of your circumstances because God does not change, even if your circumstances do. So, number one, principle number one, remember always, God is not working toward the same goals that the world tells you you should be aiming toward. Number two, number two, remember the importance of Christian hope. So Jesus in Mark 10, 29 through 31 says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So it's talking about a, a radically new way to look at life. We don't measure God's blessings by what we have now. We measure God's blessings by the hope that we have in the future. And whatever we lose in this life, let's say you as a Christian, give a very specific example. You're a Christian young person and you definitely want marriage. You want family life. But your prospects for marriage, the person who asks you to marry them or the person who you're most attracted to is not a believer in Jesus and you decide, I don't want to go in this direction because it's going to hurt my relationship with God and I think it's going to be disobedient to him. And you may say to yourself, I'm, I'm giving up a lot for his sake. Jesus says, whatever you've lost, which is the prospect of marriage to someone you're attracted to, you're going to gain hundredfold. You're not going to regret it ultimately. Um, and you can extend that to other things. I, I could advance in my career, but I'd have to compromise my principles. I'd have to do things that I know would not be pleasing to my God. So you say no to those things. You, you make choices that, that end up hurting you in an earthly, earthly sense. And Jesus says, you won't regret that choice. You're going to receive back hundredfold what you gave up. That's living with Christian hope. 
it's a new way to look at life. So, so here's the way I, I picture it. Let's say you come over to my house and I'm grilling steaks for us. And so halfway through, now let's say I'm grilling brisket. I've never actually grilled a brisket, but this works better. So we're, I'm grilling a brisket and halfway through, I bring you a little sample and I give it to you on a plate. Here's your little, here's your little piece of brisket and you eat it and you think, oh man, you taste that smoky bark and you think, wow, that's really good. Do I want you to enjoy that sample? Yeah, of course I do. But is that the feast? No, of course not. What happens if you show up after I've handed out the samples and you miss out on those samples? Have you missed out on something enjoyable? Sure you have, but you haven't missed out on the feast. You're both going to enjoy the feast when it's ready. And that's the way we should look at earthly blessings. Some of us are blessed to be married and we're happy in marriage and God has blessed us with children and, and we should enjoy those things. Some of us have been given earthly success and if so, we should rejoice in that. Some of us have been given uh, you know, physical health. Some of us have been given a certain status in the world, uh, earthly, uh, earthly material things. Those are gifts from God, we should enjoy them, but they're just appetizers. Someday, when we get to heaven, when we get to the new earth, we're gonna get the real feast and it's gonna blow away what we had on this earth. It's gonna remind us of those things I mean, the blessings we get, one of the things the scriptures tell us is sex is a precursor of the, our union with Christ. So when we're united with Christ someday, we'll say, oh, I had like a, a tiny taste of this before in my relationship with my spouse, but this is so much better. This is so much more fulfilling. And anyone who misses any of that stuff, it'll be like the person who shows up too late for the appetizers. Did they miss something fun? Sure. But they didn't miss the real feast. And that's the way Christian hope can change the way we look at the world and can set us free from so much of the bondage that we experience in life. Boy, I hope that makes sense. Honestly, I'm still working through all of this because it's such a paradigm shift for us in the way we think. But once we get it, it's, it's going to make life so much more fulfilling and so much less anxiety causing. So have a great week. Stay safe. I look forward to seeing you this weekend. Continue to pray alongside us as God continues to change the world in and through us. I love you and God bless you.